Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org healthy living. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I am so happy to have this next guest on. He's been on before for his excellent book, Range, which really influenced me. So David Epstein, he was trained as a geologist, but he loves sports. And he did what you know I always love is when people combine their skills and they become the best in the world of the intersection. So he's literally one of the best writers in the world. He was the fastest rising sports illustrated writer to combine sports and science. And then his book Range really influenced me a lot on some of my ideas about how to learn things, how to learn things quickly, how to rise up to the top. And I I feel like I took it even a few steps further and skipped the line, but His book, Range, is definitely highly recommended, but that's not what this is about. He just started, so Slate.com has had a podcast forever. They were working with Charles Duhigg, who wrote The Power of Habit, who's been on this podcast as well. But now David Epstein is hosting the how-to podcast on Slate. And it's really like people ask questions and he uses scientific research and examples and he brings on experts to answer the question, like how to quiet the chatter in your head. How to survive a doomsday cult, how to fall out of love, how to start over at 60, how to steal back your identity, how to be a badass on and off the court. And his latest one, how to survive in the wild, part one, which I need to do. I would be dead in the wild. Well, let me see. Certainly 24 hours would be my maximum because I wouldn't be able to eat and I can't start a fire, but probably less because a lion would kill me. And and I, I'm the sort of person that 40,000 years ago my I would not have had descendants and I would have been weeded out of the gene pool because I just would not have survived in the wild. So I'm going to have to listen to David Epstein's podcast. But we talked about a lot of these episodes. So here's David Epstein. David, how's it going? It's going great. You know, I'm a little bit bummed that the first time we got to chat was uh, in the in the comedy club and that was really a lot of fun and there was like a small live audience you know yeah. and i don't know that was just a really neat experience so i hope i get to do that again someday i hope so too a i hope you get to do that again someday on my podcast and b i hope i eventually do i don't think i'll ever do my podcast in that space because as far as i know i think we gave up that second floor during the pandemic mm-hmm. so and the comedy clubs just reopened in new york city also just the other day and we had a sold out house the first day wow but uh, so how to podcast, how to I get a podcast on Slate. How did you get it? 
It, totally randomly. Um, it was created by Charles Duhigg, the author of Power of Habit. Yeah, who also has been on this podcast. Great guy. You know, and he's a science writer. And I, we had been talking about something else. Like both of us were sort of, you know, I think wrote books that kind of took off beyond our expectations and sort of changed our career trajectories and things like that. And so we were just sort of like talking about some things in common and about giving virtual presentations. And we're both two of, we both use Prezi video graphics, you know, it's like flying around our head and stuff and not many people use them. And so we were just talking about that stuff. And and not long after that, he just called me and was like, hey, uh, do you have any interest in maybe taking over as the host of this podcast? I'm going off to write my next book. And I, I had, I was interested in podcasts, but one, I kind of hate listening to my own voice when I have to transcribe interviews, so I wasn't like looking for a reason to listen to it even more. But um, I, I wanted, you know, we were just talking about these experiments, right? And so people would people would come to me saying like, well, why don't you pitch our platform a podcast? And what I really was more interested in was an experiment where I could sort of dip my toe in that was kind of already made. If I could find out how to get some signal about if I liked it and how it fit me from something that was already created. And so when that came out of the blue, I said, well, I'll at least like do the audition, which is a guest episode, uh, and see how I like it. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. I think since leaving my, I used to work at ProPublica, and since leaving that, I think I, I missed having kind of a small team. And so that was one of the things I didn't really expect in the podcast process, that I enjoyed having a little team again. And so it just sort of fell into my lap that way, and I saw it as a worthwhile experiment, kind of no matter what happens. And you've dealt with a lot of interesting questions, uh, you know, how-to questions. Basically, the format is somebody has a problem, Mm-hmm. presents it to you and then you bring on an expert and you the expert the person sort of like hash through the problem and and look at it from all sorts of interesting angles whether it's academic angles or practical angles and come to some conclusions like i like though a very classic problem is someone uh, a woman told uh her boyfriend she loved him he did not say it back and she couldn't uh stop thinking about it and she was like obsessively thinking about it and you bring on a, a, a scientist who specializes on these things and talk about everything from neurochemicals like oxytocin and how oxytocin fizzles over time. That's kind of this bonding molecule that uh, keeps you thinking about the person and then it sort of fizzles over time. And that was, you know, time heals all wounds is the ultimate answer. Yeah, I mean, so we used that episode to bring on Helen Fisher, who's like the guru of the neurochemistry of love, right? And And... I, that was sort of an excuse. In some ways, a lot of them are. Like a lot of the work I do is like an excuse for me to investigate my own curiosity. And then I hope that sure. it's interesting to someone else. And I had followed her work for such a long time uh, that I was kind of like looking for an excuse to bring her on. And and she turned out to be hilarious, uh, Helen Fisher was, and that she had just gotten married. You know, she's like in her 70s and had had just gotten married. And so she had sort of her own love story to tell. So a lot of this was like things that I'm often doing if I'm reporting a book, but that are occurring in private, which is me just kind of investigating something I'm curious about and trying to talk to someone interesting and kind of just doing that a little bit more publicly. Why was this personal to you? Did you recently told someone you love them and, and they rejected you? No, not not recently, you know, but I definitely had stories in my in, in my past where, where that had happened that I wondered about. I was just interested in her work. And also I was kind of interested in, like a friend of mine who'd gotten divorced and was dating for the first time in a long time in the pandemic. And I was kind of curious to hear, just hear where she is on like dating and and love in general. And in fact, she said, Helen Fisher said that there's some, they're seeing some advantages in their work. You know, she's also like this, the scientific advisor for Match.com. So she's always like sifting through all this like online dating data. It's got to be a fun job, actually. <laughs> Seems that way. Um, and And so, you know, she was saying, actually, we're seeing like some advantages where people are having to kind of jump into like talking about 
values without like paying for dinner first a little. And so they're they're culling down to like serious options a lot more quickly. And so I was kind of curious. I wanted to kind of hear her take on how this was progressing. Because I'd heard from some of my friends that they actually thought there were benefits to like pandemic dating, which doesn't, isn't really, wasn't really intuitive to me, I have to say. But so Helen suggested that actually some do show up in their data. I think it was like 2009. I did very briefly online dating. And I, I could tell you from my perspective, the benefits of remote online dating where you don't have to go to dinner is that dinner takes a lot of time. Yeah. And most dates, most people are not really appropriate for each other. Right. So why waste time? Like you don't have to commute to the date. You don't have to have a three course meal and make yeah. up conversation for three hours and then commute home. Like you just, you kind of just like zoom and like, all right, well, we don't quite mesh. There's no, nothing happening. I guess you can't really tell physical chemistry as much over zoom, but who knows? I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's very much in line with some of what she was saying is that you get this much lower lift for like passing that first filtering level essentially and sort of calling the options. But here's a question I had, like she talks about how, you know, oxytocin starts off intense when you fall in love. And then if there's, if you're rejected, it sort of just simmers down over time. That's the, and again, oxytocin is this, it's sometimes called the, the love neurochemical or the love molecule, but it's sort of like a painkiller. The main purpose is to help women during labor so they don't experience as much pain. And I guess if they love the person they're having a child with, better for them to not experience pain during the labor of that child. But but there's also a lot of evidence that you know women experience it during different times, during um, sex, that men don't always have that flush of oxytocin in the same way. But I'm curious, why does someone get so upset more when they're rejected than if they're doing the rejecting? So like if they fall out of love, it's not the same as if they're rejected from love somehow. Like they were in both cases, they're in love, but then right. they're shut down. Like there's something about rejection that seems beyond oxytocin and, and, and maybe it's related to other neurochemicals referring to where you place in the tribe, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, th I think that's probably the case. I mean, and, and again, I'm no expert on this, but, but to go off of, of what Helen was talking about, including, you know, a lot of which ended up in the extras because we edit the the episodes down. Um, she was talking a bit about how like eventually to get over those rejections, people kind of like look for replacement and, and they often look for replacement too quickly because there are all these identity issues wrapped up in it, right? And that um, you sort of start, like the people who have the most trouble getting over it are reframing how they see themselves in a not positive way, essentially. And so I, I think there is a lot more than oxytocin wrapped up in it. Because uh, there's this this sort of personal image, which is what she was talking about, is why people try to do like a rebound, basically, because you're sort of like trying to grab like an image of yourself that's floating away, and you'll start like lowering your your bar of acceptance for doing something like that. So, so I think there is a lot more to it. Yeah, it's so interesting, and like, yeah, it seems to me that it's like with anything. Like, let's say you're the number two, one or two tennis player, and you use a, lose a critical match against the number twenty tennis player, you might think I'm never going to win again. I was number one. I just lost to number 20. And then I lost a couple of ranking points in the, and, and that's your tribe. And you look at whether your, your alpha status, whether you're number one or number five or number 20 and dopamine goes down when you go down. And so let, maybe if you're rejected by a romantic partner, your dopamine takes a quick hit down. Your brain thinks it's being kicked out of some tribe and you're going to have to survive by yourself in the jungle and you're going to die. And so what is it like stress adrenaline spikes up? or norepinephrine, maybe that's the real issue on rejection as opposed to just not being in love. 
Yeah, I mean, and one of the, that that kind of dovetails with one of the things Helen was saying, which is like you immediately want to get that dopamine kick back, but beware of doing that because the quickest way to do it is to do things that you associate with that person who rejected you, and so you can kind of get like a, another hit of that, but but that'll kind of keep you on the hook, right? That'll that'll keep you yeah. like near the the object of addiction essentially. And so she was much more for like deal with the pain, rip the bandaid off, bury the memories in a cold grave in Siberia. And you'll lessen the healing time by a lot, as opposed to looking for those short dopamine kicks that'll kind of keep you addicted. People always say, uh, you know, dopamine's a double-edged sword. Like on the one hand, you like to get your your tennis ranking back right away, but it, you could think about it. There's there's all sorts of negative ways to get dopamine, like taking drugs, for instance. You know, like cocaine spikes your dopamine. That's obviously not a good thing to use to replace good sources of, of dopamine. And I, I know the last time I had a breakup, I said to myself, I'm going to be a monk for a year. I'm just going to literally <laughs> check into a monastery and not see anybody for a year. I'm just sick of this. <laughs> and and then four days later, I met uh, the woman who's now my wife. Now, I know it could be too considered too fast, but knock on wood, fortunately, it, it, it worked out and it's great. And uh, but but yeah, that that happens. And maybe it was just for dopamine or maybe I met the love of my life. Who who knows? But um, it's so interesting though, like I like that type of podcast where you're just confronted with problems and you, you could either bring on guests or not and solve them. Like, let's talk about some of the other, I mean, I've, I've gone through all of them, but what, what are some of your favorites? Which I know is a difficult question to answer. They're all your favorites, but. No, what, I mean, they're, they're not. talk a lot about romance, by the way, on, on this podcast. Yeah, they're, they're not all my favorites. Well, and some of that is like, um, you know, I, since I inherited a show that was going, right, I, probably three quarters, you know, in my brief tenure of the of the subjects that get addressed are generated by listener questions. And listeners send in a lot of questions about love and romance stuff. You know, it is it is the most common topic. So it's more like lo- looking for a lot of the other stuff. But like my, my first episode, I sort of used, you know, as this same excuse to talk to someone I hadn't talked to in a while, which was Sian Bylock, who, you know, having written about sports and science, her work is famous among sports scientist because she studies what causes people to choke. She's the president of Barnard College now, but she's a cognitive psychologist. Some of her studies got famous among athletes, but they really apply to anything, right? It's like basically when you're learning something, it's up in your prefrontal cortex and you're having to like think about everything you're doing. Like you can think about driving, right? Hand over hand. And then as you get better at it, it moves back into more primitive parts of your brain where you can do without thinking about it. And the problem when you choke is that something makes you nervous or anxious and causes you to consciously think against, you pull back these things you work so hard to automate back into the front of your brain and you're like a beginner again, thinking about what are the exact movements. That doesn't matter if you're going to give a speech, you know, you're playing a sport or whatever. And I've always loved her work. And so I really enjoyed having her on. Yeah. I want to, I want to dig a little on this because this happens like in every area of life, right? Whether you're dating and you choke during a date, like Mm -hmm. you don't feel like you really expressed your, your real personality or definitely in sports, um, you might be maybe you're the number 10 tennis player in the world instead of number one, because every time you get about to win Wimbledon, you choke and fall back down to number 10. And yeah. you can, so although the example you had in that particular podcast was someone who was just like a club player who, who was too yeah. nervous. And yeah. I, I see this a lot at the strong amateur level in every yeah. sport or game, which is that they, they're good. They have the skill they, perhaps they have the talent, but when it gets to the point of really testing their metal, they just, they either refuse to do it or they do it and they choke and get bad at it. And, and you know, Carol Dweck famously wrote a book, Mindset, which is about the fixed mindset versus, with the, versus the growth mindset, which is related to this. But what's what's the issue with choking? 
Yeah, I mean, it is this literal like thinking about things in a conscious way again that you don't want to be attending to, right? Where when you want to behave smoothly and have access to everything in your brain and anxiety, performance anxiety totally undoes that, right? So all all the things about like being in like a flow state and and performing well get undone by certain kinds of anxiety. And I think most people probably, their most familiar experience of this is probably doing something with public speaking, right? Where they can talk fine about a topic if they're talking to their friends. And if they're put in front of an audience of strangers, suddenly, like, they're super nervous and they forget all the things they're going to say. Yeah, and, and, and why is that? Because on the one hand, uh, like, for instance, one time I was, and my listeners know about this experiment I did, but I wanted to improve at stand-up comedy, so I did comedy on a subway, which uh, is incredibly scary, but there's no actual reason for it to be scary. Like yeah. the downside is almost the lowest you could possibly construct for yourself. Like I'm gonna basically talk to 12 random strangers at rush hour who are gonna hate me. I already know that in advance. And then I'm never gonna see them again. There's yeah. no downside. And yes, it, yet it was one of the scariest things possible. Yeah. Like what makes these situations high stakes? By the way, when I was first getting into journalism and I was I'm an introvert, it was not natural for me to talk to strangers. I started forcing myself to strike up conversation with people in elevators, like that exact same thing, right? Because no matter how bad it goes, like somebody's getting off in like 20 seconds. Uh, and so it's this sort of low stakes practice that feels really high stakes, right? Because it just feels uncomfortable. Basically. I guess your brain doesn't know the difference between when it that's is right. high stakes and low stakes. And so that's why it feels that way. Absolutely. These are typically like not things that people do, right? I think- as we become more competent and comfortable in the things we do, we may have talked about this before, what I call the rut of competence, but I remember when I talked to the economist Russ Roberts, he said it's a hammock of competence. Like once we get comfortable at doing something, it's so comfortable that we never get out of it anymore. And so that's kind of how most people are proceeding in their lives and careers is they can they get competent at something and then they just keep doing only that and it becomes part of their identity and anything else becomes weird basically. And so I think you know, there's a tendency to probably exacerbate the circumstances that can cause choking because we get so used to just kind of doing the same thing over and over and over. When you're little, right? Like I see, I have a two-year-old son. Like he has no reservation about doing goofy and embarrassing stuff and asking like weird questions and all those things, right? But this because like two-year-olds are just idiots. <laughs> well, there's no point. question about that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think this is something that like develops as you you realize like what acceptable behavior is. Because as you said, even giving a public talk, right? It's like not like, the circumstances of it not going perfectly, the the repercussions are not big. And yet it's always listed, you know, right after snakes as like the the number two fear among Americans. So I think it's not a logic. Seinfeld famously has a joke that people list public speaking, they're afraid of that more than they're afraid of death itself. Yep. So his joke is the person giving the obituary would rather be in the grave. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's great. I mean, if and if I if I had to guess, I think something that you mentioned earlier probably has to do with this, which is things that we've had to be, historically speaking, like sensitive to things that would, you know, get you censured by the community, right? Like you, you fitting in is important, uh, and not being an outcast is important. And I'm sure we still have things in our lizard brain that are like, I'm performing in a bunch of strangers. What is this going to say about my identity and sort of my place in the society? Even though the reality nowadays is probably nothing in most cases. Right, but if you only had a tribe of 30 people and 29 of those 30 you're, uh, hate you and you get kicked out of the tribe, you're going to die. Yeah, I think there are a lot of remnants of, of those things, right? Because otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. But here, here's the question I have like in, this, in the tennis case and, and, and in the work of, um, what's her name, the scientist again? Sian Bailak. Yes, Sian Bailak. The example you had was of a club player who was afraid yeah. to be competitive you know, in, 
with people she would normally socialize with. Yeah. But so I so I get that. She doesn't want to I I don't like to compete against people I'm social with. But what's the difference between that and choking at a really high stakes professional level? Well, I think most people like her wouldn't cuz this woman was also sort of choking in her she felt she was choking in her like off-court professional life also. I think the mechanisms are pretty much the same. I mean, one thing that you see in Sian's research and other research on choking is that what happens when someone chokes is they start reactivating their prefrontal cortex, basically. It doesn't, doesn't matter sort of what level they're at or what you're talking about. And so, like, one of the joke among researchers who study this is, you know, in tennis, if you really want to screw up your opponent, you should go up to them and be like, you know, the, w- the way you, like, angled your arm on that shot, that was really something. Can you show me how you did that? Because you want them stopping and thinking consciously about what they're mm-hmm. doing. And that looks the same whether it's, you know, I think different things will trigger that, whether you're someone who's an amateur or someone who's a pro. Um, you see sometimes in like the yips in golf or like a Chuck Knobloch, a baseball player who suddenly, you know, can't throw straight 30 feet. So I think different things trigger those, but biologically it's like the exact same, same process. And you can undo it the same way by occupying your prefrontal cortex. And how do you do that? You can do it as simple as singing backward, focusing on some external thing, right? Like writing something on your hand that when you feel it happening, you start focusing on that. You, you want to practice anything that'll, that will... Uh, occupy your prefrontal cortex. So taking up your conscious thoughts. So so singing again in, in your head is one, counting backwards. Um, anything that requires conscious thought that'll that'll take that prefrontal cortex and, and occupy it with something else. So I wonder if this is related. Like I, I used to be super afraid of public speaking, like to Me the too. point where I would like, it would be my turn next. Let's say I was at a TED talk and it would be my turn next. I would like leave the building with the assumption that I'm never going back. I'm just going to like ruin my career, oh, I mean, ruin my reputation. Sweaty palms, everything. Yeah. And so, but one thing that's always worked for me, and I wonder if this is the same thing as occupying the prefrontal cortex, is I would watch, like right before I'm supposed, whether it's comedy or public speaking or whatever, I would watch somebody else who's great doing it. And so maybe I would watch a great TED Talk or a great comedian. And then somehow or another, that would... I always thought maybe it would trigger mirror neurons in me so that it's almost like getting a shot of that person's mm. ability for like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, which carries me through the the fear threshold of starting this talk or starting a, a performance or whatever. Like, I wonder if that's, if I'm just occupying the prefrontal cortex with that or if there's something more. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here, but there is some interesting research about um, viewing yourself as someone else, right? Like when you're trying to do creative work is just like pretending that you're this other person that you admire. And it seems to take some of the breaks off. And in that case, I could see it taking some of the pressure off too, right? It's like you're maybe implicitly occupying another personality and sort of being like them and feeling like less of the pressure just on yourself. So maybe you're distributing a little bit of that pressure. And again, that's a little bit speculative, but there definitely is work that shows that that's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. So one of the, one of the really useful things you can do to, to combat choking and sort of like a spiral of negative feelings is so-called distanced self-talk. This comes up all the time in in any choking and things related to choking, which is you start talking to yourself, not saying I, right? You say, like, David, what are you doing here? Or you should do this. Or either, either in the second or third person. And this seems to cause like some mental shift um, that actually gets people to take their own good advice. And I wonder if you looking at those other people is you're, you're sort of putting yourself in that more distance mindset instead of like going down this rabbit hole of rumination on, you know, how you're going to fail and what the repercussions are going to be. And also it seems like there's two time frames for choking. There's like general, you know, that in this kind of situation, you have a tendency to choke. 
and but you're outside of it so you could prepare for it. But what if you're in the middle of a sport or a game or a performance and then you start to choke? And I think I think sport or a game is the best yeah. uh, analogy because you can measure moment by moment how you're doing based on the score. Yeah. So what if you find yourself in the middle of a game and it's a high stakes game or sport, you sense you could choke, you've choked in the past and you don't want to choke this time, but you're mid game. Yeah. And yeah. so it's it's moment by moment. And job interviews is another place where people talk about this yeah. a lot, right? When they feel themselves choking because it, it is it is a reinforcement cycle. When you start to choke and you say, I'm choking, then you're going to choke worse. Yeah. So I think the best thing you can do for that is the so-called cognitive outsourcing, where you have something where, you know, you want to be prepared for this or know that this is a possibility and that you have something external that you can focus on. Whether that's, ideally, that would be like something that you can look at, you know, whether you're carrying or you're writing it on your hand in some mantra or something like that. But basically, you want something external that you can really narrow your focus. Focus on something external and then think only about, like, the next point, essentially. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. 
this is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or a pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See Hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You've mentioned public speaking a couple of times is something you've yeah. been afraid of. Let's say you're in a talk and you feel the audience starting to drift away. Okay, your biggest fear. Then you start to think, I'm choking. What will you personally do? Yeah, for, so for me, I have sort of mantras that I keep in mind if I think something's not going well. And for me in speaking, it's, and again, I always use distant self-talk, because which I first came to through endurance research. It shows that like you should say, you're going to get up this hill, or David, you're going to get up this hill rather than I'm going to get up this hill. And I'll say, David, they really want you to succeed. If I'm giving a talk and I don't think it's going that well, I try to remind myself that the audience is actually like wants me to succeed, right? They're not there to watch me fail, I don't think. What will happen to me sometimes if I'm in a talk, if I miss a line that I really wanted to say, I'll start to get down on myself a little bit, be like, I, that, that was like my main thing that I was building up to there and I forgot it. And the fact is, though, the audience doesn't know what you didn't say, right? 
And so I'll, I'll just sort of tell myself, be like that, you know, like, David, they don't know what you didn't say. They want to see you succeed. And, and that, that helps me just sort of move on from it. Because you can't, I mean, this has to be right in your public speaking. Yeah. I'll take like an extra breath and do that. But that seems to be helpful for me because I have, I did get into a situation where I sort of crashed and burned once because like, I missed a line I wanted to say. So I tried to like work back to it in another way. And then it just became not good. Yeah, that's horrible because that's almost like in stand-up comedy, you make a joke, no one laughs, and then you feel like you have to explain the joke. That's always the the death of the performance. That was me. <laughs> but but I, I was listening to Brian Regan talk about this, though. Who, he's a famous comedian, and he basically said he views himself, when he starts to bomb, he views himself as sitting in the audience, and is he making himself laugh? Maybe that's a distance, this distancing thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting how much I would have. I was skeptical, honestly, of of distancing when I first started reading this research because I'm I'm always skeptical. You know, one thing that I think is often left out in science writing is anything about effect sizes. So you'll see like a headline about this thing causes or prevents cancer or whatever, um, and then you go if you go and actually look at the effect size, and it'll say statistically significant. You're like, yes, but it is so such a marginal effect size that actually no one should ever care about it or pay any attention to it because it, it, in practice it actually doesn't matter. And I'm always start from a place of skepticism with very small intervention. Like usually for big effects, you need big interventions. And so when you see like tiny, tiny interventions, like changing the pronouns you're using in your self-talk or, or trying to create that cognitive distance and it having an effect, I start from a place of skepticism, but it's been repeated in so many domains that it kind of made me a believer over time. So I think any of these mechanisms that get involved in distancing, there, there's another really interesting part of this literature is why we give better advice on the same problem to our friends than we give to ourselves. Hmm. And so the advice is, if you need advice, like give yourself the advice that you would give to your friends. So so seeing the, you know, seeing the replication, basically, I've become a believer. Which I guess that's another distancing thing, which is if you view yourself as just one of your friends, it's easier for you to give advice to yourself. Totally. So... But like, what if, let's say, let's say you're playing tennis. I always use tennis as an analogy. I don't know why, but let's say <laughs> you're in the middle of a tournament and your backhand has been really failing you. So, you know, you start to get self-conscious about it. You start thinking, oh, oh it's, he's hitting right now to my backhand. Am I going to choke? Like, what should that person do? Because it's hard to say he's hitting the backhand to someone else. Like, what he, should he do? Oh, you mean, yeah, <laughs> like you're acting like it's not happening to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you could still talk to yourself and say like, you know, I mean, if there's nothing you can do and you you have to use that backhand, right? And they they know that it's there. I think first of all, I would try to. I mean, if it, like if you have a, if your backhand sucks, that's not choking. That's your backhand sucks. Right. Right. But you're the best in the world. Right. And you and suddenly your backhand's failing you this tournament. Right. Okay. So in that case, I think first of all, you want to like not think down, not go down the rumination line of if my backhand keeps failing, what is going to happen? And so try to pull back and like focus on if you have one of those those external mantras and start just playing totally one point at a time. And you can still use distance self-talk for that, right? Like, it's just a, like, if you're berating yourself, do it in the third person instead of uh, in, the, in the first person. Um, so I think it's same, similar strategies, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I see this a lot in chess. Like, I was watching a video the other day of uh, uh, this guy who's, like, the best, he's the best, one of the best players in the world, but the best player in a, in a big country. And he was blundering quite a bit, meaning he was, you know, just giving up a queen or giving up a rook in one, without seeing it in one move, which is his abilities were certainly not that weak, but there was like a blind spot and he was somehow choking. And he got so upset at himself. He even like threw a chair at one point and he's like screaming mm. curses on this video. 
Um, but I wonder what someone like that can do. Uh, I guess, again, start referring to himself in the third person. I mean, you start to get really afraid that something's wrong with your head right then. Yeah, that that sounds like a pretty extreme, um, like he was throwing chairs and things like that already getting. But that's what you feel like in a, in a you know, those are like high intense games. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what people tend to start, well, what, what I think some of this research says when people get into that phase, what they start doing is they say like, why am I doing this? Like I suck, right. like what's wrong with me? And so I think at least you can cause a little change with that and start trying to give yourself advice, right? Instead of saying, why am I? So once you go down the rumination path, you're going to accentuate the the choking essentially and doing the why am I, why am, you know, and you get in that sort of fit of rage. Um, one of the things that I think is a is a bit of an open question is how can you use like a little time away, right? Like sometimes you force someone, if they're playing well, to have like a little time out because you want them to start thinking and you want your opponent to, to choke, basically. Like that's the theory behind, you know, icing a kicker or something like that. Just you take the time out so that they'll start thinking about what they're doing and hopefully de-automate this skill that they work so hard to automate. On the other hand, if you are find yourself choking, will taking a timeout help or not? My feeling is you might as well try it if you're already going down that road of choking and, and then just try to focus on something else when you're taking that time away. I think I think that is the 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 general approach because let's say you're to- choking but you have the ability to walk away for a little while that's usually useful because you might be choking it might be that you're playing poorly or it might be that you have something else on your mind it might be you didn't get enough sleep or you didn't eat well that day or you you didn't drink your coffee that morning or whatever it is who who knows so in general I think uh, you know it's 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 hard to say because again some situations are very fast and immediate like like physical flow state situations, yeah, like you're yeah. skiing or you're playing tennis or you're playing chess or something like that. And other things are a little slower, like public speaking. You'll do a talk, but then you're not going to do another talk for like a month. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it's you know, you have to sort of deal with it during that month. I mean, on, on the longer time scale, I think there's some interesting research. Of course, I see this through my range colored glasses it, that, that shows that having a hobby unrelated to your work increases your self-efficacy, right? So you you feel more competent, which of course makes you less likely to choke. Whereas having a hobby that's exactly related to like what you do in your day job uh, actually decreases some feelings of self-efficacy. I guess because when you have a hobby unrelated to work and you're doing well at it, A, you're boosting your dopamine through the hobby as opposed to, to the, the, the uh, task that you're choking on. So you're kind of replenishing that these happy neurochemicals without you know, dealing with the choking issue. So that's a good thing. And also maybe it reduces the stakes. Like it's like diversification of an investment. If one thing falls apart, you don't care because you're diversified. So if you diversify the hierarchies that you're moving up or down in, then any one hierarchy could collapse for you and it doesn't matter as much. I think that's some of it. I think it's spreading out that like uh, identity risk, you know, and one of the, one of the, I don't want to go too far afield here, but probably the coolest sports feat I've ever seen in person happened at the Vancouver uh, Winter Olympics in 2010, yeah, where this woman, this Slovenian woman who had been like one of the best in the world for years but would always like choke basically at, or, or something would go wrong, like a ski would break or something at every Olympics and World Championships. She was one of the favorites in, I think it was the 1.6K sprint where there were four rounds in one day. And it's like sprint, you know, so it's like a, basically like a mile, but they, and it's up and downhill and all this stuff. And warming up for the first round where she's one of the favorites, she slides off like an icy sort of creek in, in icy patch into a dry creek bed and lands on her side and is in like an excruciating pain. They hustle a couple minutes before she has to go, give her like a quick MRI. 
And they say, well, nothing's broken. It's just pain, you know? So she barely qualifies from the first round, even though she's one of the favorites. She goes through two more rounds each time, like collapsing afterward. After the penultimate round, she's like on the ground screaming. They had to carry her off. They give her another MRI. Say, well, it's just, it's just pain. You know, nothing's, uh, nothing's broken. And she makes it into the final round and like, furiously screaming every step of the way, like, gets the bronze medal. And turns out later, actually, like, half of her ribs were broken. One of them had cut off and punctured her lung. And they just, like, couldn't diagnose it quickly enough. And so she had to come to the medal ceremony with a tube sticking out of her chest and all this stuff. And I, I spent some time with her after with her sports psychologist. And they were saying, like, I was like, well, what's one of the big differences? This year, usually, usually everything lines up perfectly for her, and then it's disaster. This time, it was a total disaster, and she finally medaled. And he was like, yeah, you know, we decided she needed to start building a house because like she was just holding on too tight in training. Like she needed other stuff to do. Like every every one of these disasters would compound and make the next one more inevitable because she'd focus even more, you know, hold on even more tightly because last time didn't go right. And so then any little thing would totally set her off if it didn't go perfectly at a competition. So basically we're saying they started like diversifying her life a little bit so that she wasn't holding quite as tightly and getting in this like spiral or any little thing that went wrong like totally crushed her and her identity. You know, I know that's a little far afield, but uh, No, no, but that that makes sense. That's the kind of diversifying diversifying of the things that give you pleasure so it reduces the stakes of everything. It probably increases the performance of the things you love most and reduces the 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 high stakes versus low stakes aspect of it so so you you choke less. Is my guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, it I think it also just gave her some distraction time so like because you can't train every hour of the day, right? And so she's replaying all these. She clearly had a had a tendency to replay all these things that had gone wrong um, in her head a lot. And so I think it it again it sort of occupied occupied part of her brain that would have otherwise been ruminating in an unhelpful way. You know, uh, let's talk about this ruminating thing because this occurs in a lot of the or not a lot, but many of the ep- of these how to episodes. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, I'm going down a rabbit hole, thinking of some worry, some anxiety. Usually it happens a lot in romance, but it could happen in jobs. It could happen in, again, any important situation. What does one do about ruminating? Like, how can you, like when I'm worried about something, let's say I'm worried a business I was heavily invested in might be out of business or might be whatever. I make, my, I make up stuff in my head. Uh, it might be a scam, it might be whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or if I'm in a relationship and... I, there's plenty of things I can roommate on if I can't get a hold of the the person. So, what what's the, and it seems to me at those moments there is no way to stop ruminating. Yeah, I mean, I is think, that true? I, I think the most helpful thing to me from as we did this episode on chatter, you know, which is what the psychologist Ethan Cross yes. basically refers to as this like unhelpful rumination. Um, you know, your your inner voice, and and I think the thing that was most, you know, there was again the distant self talk. There was writing things down so that you cognitive outsourcing, right? So it's not occupying your mind, you put it somewhere else. But the one that was the most interesting to me, I think, was about how you use your friends. Um, because my intuition, and I think probably most people's intuition, whether whether I'm going to a friend or they're coming to me, is to be like extremely solicitous about something they're concerned about. You know, like, yeah, no, I totally understand that. That person really should have called you back. They're treating you wrong, all these sorts of things. Like, why haven't they responded yet? And, and what Ethan was saying was, was that's called co-rumination, where you're satisfying their, um, their emotional needs to be heard and to be, to, be, mm. to be seen, you know, and all those things. But you're not helping with their cognitive needs, which is like this need to, like, reframe it and stop going down this, 
this rabbit hole momentum that they're going down. And so the better thing to do is just start like offering alternative ways of seeing the scenario. Like, well, maybe they got busy. Something might've come up. You don't even have to say like, this is likely. You just start like throwing out these different frames that someone could think about it from. So even if they have an argument for each frame, yeah. you could say, look, I get it that you have an argument for each frame. The reality is though, we just looked at like 98 different ways this could be happening and you just gave me two. Yeah, because part of what he was saying is, is what happens is when they get down that co-rumination, they start like, they get into a cycle of extreme confirmation bias where once they've decided on a way to view it, the only things that are getting in are things that fit that narrative. And it just, and they, they switch from, from scientist to lawyer of like, I am building this argument toward this thing that I have decided is happening, even if I actually have no idea why this person hasn't called me back yet or written me back. And so you want to take them back into scientist mode if you can, where it's like, well, there's some things that may not fit that. There are some alternative, alternative possibilities, right? And so, so if you can just sort of offer that perspective and try to drag them out of prosecutor mode and a little bit back into, into scientist mode. And I thought that was really interesting. And so it did, it did, it changed my thought about a friend I love who I may not turn to next time if I'm, because uh, he said, this will make you feel really good in the short term, but it actually just accelerates your, your own, your own rumination. So yeah, like once you get off the phone with that person, then you're completely insane. <laughs> so <laughs> right, like, exactly. but like, what, what, but let's say you have no one to call and no one good to call. Uh, what do you, how can you solve this yourself? The rumination problem? Yeah, I actually think that that, with that, that perspective, um, shifting, like thinking about other possibilities is something that you can do on your own if you're sort of attuned to it, but you kind of have to stop and think about it because I don't think it's our default mode. I mean, one of the other things that he said tends to be really helpful for people is super simple is you take like 15, 20 minutes a day and just write about what you're feeling. Don't, don't care about like structure, grammar, anything. Just don't let your pen stop moving. And you do that several days in a row. And what he contended was that even though you're writing about the same thing, you'll actually write a little differently each day and you'll start giving it sort of more form and structure. Um, and, and it'll become sort of more coherent in your mind. And that some of the coherence is some of what you're looking for, actually. Like the, one of the reasons your brain is, is ruminating is because there are a bunch of unknowns that you're just filling in and, or that you're trying to fill in or wanting filled in. And if you start just sort of writing it down, it just feels more coherent. Um, and, and so you're, you'll tend to ruminate less. The other one that was a surprise to me, again, in line with this, there are these sort of unknowns that are floating around and feeling so chaotic that you can't stop attending to them is like clean the physical space around you and, mm. and your sort of overall chaos tolerance um, will, you know, y it'll be less full. And so you won't feel the need to like resolve some of those things immediately and can kind of let them simmer a little bit until, until you're I, li a little I more like quick. that strategy. I don't think I've ever done that. Yeah. You, I, you know, oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I try right after you said that I tend to keep like a messy office and I tried that and, and I do think, you know, again, who knows what exactly is, is working, but I feel like that did work for me because the next day I didn't walk into my office and I had a bunch of stuff that I was behind on. I didn't walk in and be like, and this shit is everywhere. Everything's, you know, everything's a mess. It's like, well, this is one thing I don't really have to deal with. <laughs> you know, I want, there's, there's another approach that I'm curious if, if you've come across, like I always used to get, so I, so this is like 15, 16 years ago. I used to, I had a job where I was running a fund of hedge funds, meaning I was investing in other hedge funds. So I was a hedge fund, but I, our, our strategy was to invest in other hedge funds. And every now and then I would get completely paranoid that everything I invested in was a scam. And I would do all this research. And like you said, I would have confirmation bias and I would call them. And if they said, I'll call you back in five minutes 
and they and it was six minutes later, I assume they were on a plane to Brazil with all the money. <laughs> and and like I would really assume like that would be, be in my head. And I called my investment partner at the time, uh, his name's Dan, and he he said, um, <laughs> uh, you you know that you always do this. Just call them back tomorrow morning and you'll see. You always do this. So you'll see that it's fine. And so I like this. So I started using this meta approach, which is analyzing what I always do. Like, okay, I always feel this way and I'm never correct when I feel this way. So I should take that. I should take, just take those statistics into account. And, or like, if you wake up at three in the morning, anxious, which is a common thing. Um, you wake up at three in the morning, anxious. Now I sort of meta uh, tell myself, Hey, I always am thinking this when I wake up at three in the morning, I'll, I'll, how about I deal with this at three in the afternoon the next day and get back to sleep now? Cause I, cause I can't trust what's in my head right now. And that does tend to work like by three in the afternoon, the next day, I don't even give a shit anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's really, I mean, that's like self-regulatory learning, right? You're thinking about your own thinking and learning from it. And that's yeah. like the high level. That's like the ultimate level of learning about yourself. I mean, one thing I've noticed about that, and we, when we talk about public speaking, is that I thought with more experience, just like I did when I was a, like a nationally competitive runner, I would get super nervous before races. And one way I mitigated that was I started to have a routine that I would just turn to and it would just occupy me. But I would still get nervous. It never went away. And with public speaking, when I was really, really nervous, I thought I'll get more experience and it'll go away. And it never went away. But at the same time, I came to a point where, like, but I had these feelings and this went really well. And it almost got to the point where I was like, if I don't feel that, yeah, maybe something's wrong. And so I didn't stop feeling those nerves, but I did start to realize, like, do a little analysis of myself over time and realize that it didn't, it wasn't harming my performance. And in fact, you know, sometimes I think it was actually helping. Yeah, it's it's energy of some sort, and it becomes converted into, you know, better performance energy, perhaps, if you, you know, when you realize, oh, I'm always nervous. And then once I get on stage, I always do well. And so it kind of, that then you create a new sort of cycle for that energy, I think. Yeah, the only time it really interfered with me is if I fixated on it so much that it sort of became its own separate spiral instead of just being like, oh, it's here, like, as usual, and well, it'll be fine. But let me ask this, like, so, you know, particularly in the past few years, you've had success, you had a best-selling book, which is Range, um, you, you, you rose up very quickly at Sports Illustrated, now you have this podcast, you have a very successful TED talk with like, I don't know, 15 million views or something. And when was the last, like, this is like a new phase in your life. Let's call it over the past 10 years. I'll make that up. I don't, it might be 15 years, it might be five. I don't know. But when's the last time you really felt fear related to performance? No, I, I really do still feel very nervous when I give talks, when I do all sorts of things. I gave a talk, it was invited by the chief staff of the army recently. And I was nervous about that because, like, you turn in, it's a virtual talk, and there's, like, these very imposing-looking individuals in a boardroom. And I was pretty, I was really nervous for that. Like, I was going through my old pre-race routine before I was getting ready to do that. And to some degree, it's like, whatever, the Zoom's going to click off, and who cares? But I was really nervous about it anyway. And how did it go? I think it went really well. But I, I did get nervous to a point there where I think had I not been in the phase of my life where... I know that's something that's okay and I can perform through it, that it, it may have turned into sort of a more negative spiral. Because there, there was a point where there was one thing I wanted to say from some specific army reporting that I had done um, that I forgot. And I realized that like a minute later. And I think when I were a little less experienced, I would have tried to work back to that and it would have tied me in knots. And instead, this case, I was just like, eh, you know, David, they don't know what you left out. 
not going to matter. And so I just, I just kept going, forgot about it. This was during the pandemic. This was during the lockdowns. Yeah. I mean, this was like two months ago. Yeah. Okay. So it was on zoom and that's why I was on zoom. Yeah. It's funny because you're, so you were speaking to like the, the rulers of the universe, the commanders of the most powerful army in the world. And and I assume it was about something relating to how to have better peak performance. And about two months ago, I was doing a zoom comedy event to, uh, restaurant owners in Buffalo, uh, an event of restaurant owners in Buffalo who specialize in poutine, which is some kind of, uh, Quebec oh, I know, poutine. Uh, food specialty. You never had a late and night I, and gotten some poutine at 3am. Come on, man. No, I, I hate cheese. Apparently it's like some <laughs> kind of thing. And so my, and my job was to just make jokes about it. And that was my equivalent to you speaking to the, the, the generals of the world. So, I mean, no, but, but seriously though, that's like, you're doing the, the poutine specialists. Like, that I would find really nerve wracking, right? This is like an audience. I, I wouldn't know how to judge an audience like that at all. And w- did you try to make poutine jokes specifically? Yeah, yeah. I tried to make poutine jokes, buffalo jokes, even cultural appropriation jokes because it's a Quebec dish and they were all in Buffalo. I mean, so, th- so that's, you know, I could see reasons for being very nervous about that. <laughs> I was very nervous. I still don't know if I did a good job. They, because, it, because it was a Yelp event, uh, I have yet to look at the reviews of that Yelp event. <laughs> so, cause, cause I was sent a link to the reviews and never, and supposedly it was good, but I still have not, have not looked at it. Um, so wanted to, I wanted to hit some of your other, I mean, all these how to episodes were, are so great. Like, uh, uh, you know, this one's interesting because, you know, as a writer, uh, my, and this one I haven't listened to my, my dad raised 12 children, little house on the prairie style. How do I tell his story? That's kind of an interesting problem for someone to approach you with. Yeah, well, this this woman's father, he he actually had passed away. And and it was specifically, we had had, some people had written in asking, you know, because a, a lot of people have lost uh, relatives in the pandemic. So there have been multiple questions about sort of how to write a good, not no obituary, just like a remembrance, basically. And she had such an interesting story where her father was a computer programmer and they moved to a small town in Texas, 12 kids, right? Like no running water, but he was a computer programmer. So I was like, so you guys had like a fiber optic, but no running water, you know? And because his work, he made this thing called Care Calendar, where it's like a calendar where people can sign up to sort of do good deeds for one another and families in need. And he gave it away for free. I mean, people made some donations, but basically gave it away for free. And so, you know, they sort of had to be very resourceful to, to live. And when he passed away during the pandemic, um, she sort of felt it was on her uh, this this is one of his daughters to to write a remembrance sort of for the family for the care calendar community you know maybe even for the local paper and was kind of like she liked writing but was like when I'm writing about someone that I was close to and and she said you know and and our relationship all wasn't always perfect I want it to be I want everyone to love it but I also want it to be true and not just like a bunch of cliches how do I do that and so we brought on this guy who's been one of the main authors of the New York Times what's called um, those we've lost it's sort of this like running obituaries of just sort of, you know, normal people who normally wouldn't be in the news when they passed away. And he, he kind of counseled her on that. What did he say? What's the method of writing about someone? I mean, a lot of it was him telling her like sort of the basics of working like a journalist and saying like, you'll take some of the pressure off yourself, actually, if you start kind of acting like a reporter, go to uh, people who used calendar, go to friends and family, ask them, what are the stories they remember? You'll see themes, like things are going to emerge. So it shouldn't be on you to just pick out the few spots of his life, right? I'm sure your mother right, who raised his 12 children will have sort of certain favorite stories. And so you don't need to put all this pressure on yourself. And mm-hmm. as she was telling the stories, right, she would say things like, 
well, you know, my father taught us to be really, really resourceful. Like you, you could learn anything. The tools are out there for you to learn anything. And so we knew how to do things. Like we knew how to make our own food. We knew how to farm. I had a date with a guy that had a blowout on the side of the road and he didn't know how to change it. So I had to do it. And that was a deal breaker for me. And so, so Glenn Rifkin, the guy who was, who was counseling the listener was saying like those kind of stories, like you on the side of the road having to fix your date's tire and that being like a, a deal breaker with this guy because your father forced you to be resourceful, that's like a scene you can lead with and talk about like how you got this way, right? And so I think he sort of turned her from saying, I'm gonna write like an accounting of the things he did in his life to what you really wanna do is pick a small number of, of the show not tell scenes that will really stick with people as, a, as opposed to sort of like more of a litany of his kind of accomplishments and where he lived and all those things. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I guess like his idea of using, taking scenes like that and having it almost fix the story, like there's an arc of the hero component as well, where you're allowed to, you know, the, the hero, which in this case is her father, also has to face problems. And some of those problems might be his own personal issues, but you 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 have a team of people around you who, who love you and you face those problems and they get bigger and bigger. And then you know, is the end of the story. The biggest problem of all, which is his death, I guess, and then it's, you, you come back to tell the story. Yeah. So fitting it within that structure too probably helps. And yeah, and, and there was this like cycle for it. It's this thing, care calendar that he built, you know, for families to help other families in need that became this site with a lot of traffic. Now his family was using it for the first time when he passed away. And right, so I think there was this sort of like full circle that she realized in the conversation that he had passed away now, but they were, and that was the first time they were ever using sort of his life's work. And so I think there, she started to realize there was sort of a natural arc to the story and she was telling it. I think she just hadn't, hadn't sort of thought about it in story mode. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, that's fascinating. So, so look, David, you've been doing this since January. Are you enjoying podcasting? I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I was looking for an experiment. Like I said, this sort of, this sort of fell to me and I was looking for a small experiment and I realized in doing it that I had missed since I left ProPublica, I had missed having a small team. Um, and in a lot of ways, this is kind of what I do. It's just usually not recorded where I like pester someone who I think is interesting um, and, and you know, try to hear what they have to say and get them to update me on research and things like that. You know, I, I do think I would like to diversify the show a little more so it's not maybe a little lower ratio of sort of uh, love life questions to to other things, um, and so but it feels like you're it feels like you're doing that. Like, I mean, here's we have. I mean, people should go and listen to your to your podcast. Like, here's one episode that was fascinating: how we survived growing up in an apocalyptic cults. That was and, an interesting uh, one. Yeah, and then this one is on everyone's mind right now. This one question: I'm ready to retire, but scared of what's next. How do you start over at sixty? Uh, these are uh, uh, these these are critical. And and people should go and, and listen to them. I mean, the next one I'm we're gonna try like a two part series. It's because like, I'm playing with the format a little. Is is sort of how to survive in the in the wild stuff. And in this one, we're not bringing on a listener who sent in a question. I'm sort of acting as the listener and we're having people talking about like avalanches and rattlesnakes and being lost at sea and things like that. So this will be a little bit of an experiment for us. Yeah, um, that's fascinating because I think I, I think a lot of people think they can survive. And it's like a Dunning-Kruger thing where more people think, like nine out of 10 people think they're above average at surviving in the wild. And I'm probably the one out of 10 who would completely collapse. But <laughs> let me ask you a related, let me ask you a related question. Let's say you're, you know, you're obviously very smart. You've written about a lot of things that are helpful for, for people. If you were transported in time a thousand years ago, so you suddenly are in like, 
I don't know, 1050 AD England, how would you make anything? Is there any skill that you have now that would be useful in 1050 AD or would you just be totally incompetent? I have really good aim. I think I'd be a dope archer. Um, yeah. So I think that would help. I have really good endurance. Um, so I guess I could be like a foot messenger or something like that. Um, so I can I can stay on my feet and run for a very long time. Uh, so it would probably switch from uh, cognitive to some blue collar skills like that. That's a smart answer. I I don't have any I don't have any blue no. collar skills, unfortunately. Yeah, but you've you've okay. So doing comedy, right? You've learned to chunk information really, really well, right? So there's you could you knowing the using the skills that you have for remembering information you'd be able to look like a memory savant probably for a lot of people there. So you could be some kind of like, I don't know what kind of lawyers they had there, but you'd be able to to process a lot more. Uh, I mean, you could still be a comedian, first of all, right? Yeah, like, I could be the court jester. <laughs> but maybe everybody was a memory savant that, back then because you kind of had to remember everything. There weren't real, there wasn't really books or Googles, you know, so you ha everybody had to remember. Still, I think you've probably consciously like used some of those techniques too and you'd still be better at it. Um, so I think you'd, information processing would be an advantage. All right, I'm going to go with that. But yeah, no, I'm not like a carpenter or anything like that. Although I have been learning a lot more about plumbing lately. Um, Why is that? Because I've been realizing that like sometimes it's quicker for me to just try to fix stuff than to actually get somebody to come over and fix it. Um, and so so I've actually been learning some some plumbing in my household. But uh, there's no plumbing back then. <laughs> That's true. I'm, I'm you know, this is all this is all based on you know Samuel Clemens had the book. Uh, this this wasn't a, he didn't title he didn't author this with the byline Mark Twain. He authored this with uh, Samuel Clemens, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, where the Connecticut Yankee does go back in time to King Arthur's Court and does make plumbing for England mm. at that time, and that was a useful skill for him. I feel like even without even though there wasn't indoor plumbing until much later, I I, I feel like maybe some you know like some of those skills could transfer into some engineering tricks that, um, although I would need someone to like build all the, I, mean, I, I couldn't build the components myself. So I guess that would yeah, be Yeah, like useless. a pipe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. so look, uh, uh, David, I so much enjoyed your book, Range, which we talked about last time and it really influenced a lot of my th thinking, which even went into my, my latest book. And I very much enjoy this slate podcast called How To, and you could find it anywhere that you could find podcasts. Once again, uh, I had such a fun time talking to you, learned a lot, and you're always welcome back on the podcast anytime. I really enjoyed it, and I'd love to do it in person again someday. And what are we going to get Definitely. you on? I want to bring you on as an expert on How To for something. So like, we will, if, if yeah. you think of what you'd like to be the expert on, we will, I'll make a call for listeners with, the, with that question. So we'll, we'll shoot Yeah, that'd be in. great. Yeah. Sounds good. Cool. Well, thanks again, David. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.